The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to Debrief. I'm Megan Murphy, editor of Bloomberg Businessweek. With each episode, we'll sit down with the world's leading business leaders, entrepreneurs, and political figures. It's a peek behind the scenes of global business, culture, and politics, a firsthand conversation with the people who are shaping the world's economy. If you don't feel smarter afterward, then we aren't doing our job. When I spoke with President Obama in June 2016, along with a group of Bloomberg editors, the world looked very different. The UK was poised for a referendum on whether to remain in the EU, a vote that all the smart money said would be yes. Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump were slogging it out in the polls, and for many people, a Clinton victory seemed all but guaranteed. And we all know how that turned out. In a rare Oval Office interview, the president spoke candidly about free trade, why his daughters won't work on Wall Street, and what he'd do if he were a CEO. All right, let's talk to the economy. Successful economy, um, stock market's up three times, profits are very high, and yet you still often have this label of being a, a kind of anti-business figure. How, 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 do you, how do you look at that? Well, first of all, uh, towards the end of my second term, I, uh, I think among the business community, there's maybe uh, a greater acknowledgement, uh, a less grudging acknowledgement that we steered through the worst financial and economic mm. crisis in our lifetimes successfully, uh, certainly more successfully than many of our peers. Um, you know, we're now 10% uh, above the GDP pre-crisis. Uh, in Europe, for example, they're just now yeah. Uh, getting to uh, back to even, uh, you know, as you mentioned, the stock market obviously has has come roaring back. But I think more relevant for ordinary folks, we've cut the unemployment rate in half. Uh, we have uh, been able to uh, have the longest uh, consecutive months of job growth, uh, private sector job growth. Uh, in our history, biggest job growth since the 90s in manufacturing. Uh, the auto industry has come roaring back and is selling more cars than ever. Uh, we've doubled the production of clean energy. Uh, our production of traditional fossil fuels has uh, exceeded all expectations. Uh, so uh, we've been able to grow the economy, reduce unemployment, and uh, cut the deficit by around three quarters. Mm. Uh, so it's, it's hard to argue with the facts. Uh, I think where the business community uh, has traditionally uh, voiced complaints about my administration is in the regulatory sector. Yeah. Uh, and yet, if you look at the results, Dodd-Frank uh, 
being a good example, it is indisputable that our banking system and our financial sector is safer and more stable than it was when I came into office. Now, what's also true is, is that banking profits uh, are not as outsized as they were, uh, but I don't consider that a bad thing, and I think most Americans don't either. Um, they're still making a profit, it's just that there is a froth that uh, has been uh, eliminated, and that is good over the long term for uh, uh, the financial sector. When it comes to energy, we take climate change seriously. Obviously, for extractive industries like oil or coal, uh, that means they are less freewheeling than they might otherwise be, uh, and our shift towards uh, a clean energy future is something that they may see as a threat. My argument to them would be view it as an opportunity. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's no reason why uh, a lot of big oil companies and gas companies and, and coal companies uh, can't think about how do they transition and get in the game when it comes to wind power or solar power. So uh, there will continue to be, I think, some pushback on regulation. Uh, if you look at our track record, we have actually applied cost-benefit analysis, which used to be considered a very conservative thing, to every regulation we've issued. It is indisputable and in measurable ways that uh, the benefits uh, of our regulations have far exceeded the costs. Um, so overall, uh, after some bumps along, uh, uh, along the way, our relationship with the business community, I think, is healthy. You know, we don't do everything uh, they want us to do, uh, and there are points of tension in every industry, but uh, there are also areas of great cooperation. Uh, nowhere is that more apparent than in the innovation economy, where uh, our work with uh, the tech community, with uh, the biotech industry, uh, around things like precision medicine or uh, smart cars or uh, UAS's drones uh, or the patent system uh, all indicate the degree to which, uh, by working together, we're putting America on a more competitive footing. Can I, can I ask you one specific question on, yeah. on Wall Street there? <clears throat> Is it, do you think it's a benefit of regulation that it did reduce profitability in the industry as opposed to just making the system safer? In other words, that <clears throat> big banks aren't making as much profits as they are. They're unlikely to just because the model itself has been squeezed. Is that a, something that you view as a good side effect of that regulation? I, I, our intention has not been to uh, reduce profits just for the sake of reducing profits. Our intention has been to reduce reckless behavior that led to outsized profits. So uh, I think the fact that it is harder to leverage and trade in ways that threaten the stability of the economy as a whole uh, is a positive for the U.S. economy. It may show up in terms of uh, less profitability uh, for some banking activities, uh, but my argument has always been uh, 
Start making money the old-fashioned way. Don't gamble. Invest. Do you think, do you think there was a thing where we had the, um, the other day, I interviewed Jamie Dimon. Jamie Dimon came out with a statement saying, I don't think in the next 10 years you're going to see a banker serving in a senior role in Washington. Do you, do you think, uh, is that part of the same thing? Do you think that's, that's unlikely as well? I, 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 there's no doubt that uh, the banking industry took a hit uh, post-Lehman. Um, what was interesting is early in my administration, um, somehow they often thought that me or Tim Geithner or others were uh, fanning the flames of anti-bank sentiment. Uh, and we'd have to explain to them, no, what's fanning the flames is the <coughs> fact that people have lost their homes and their savings mm. and uh, this is all spilled out into Main Street uh, while you guys are still uh, made out all right. And uh, I've, hopefully there's been some more uh, reflection uh, on the part of the banking industry uh, I, there are a number of bank CEOs, uh, including somebody like a Jamie Dimon, who um, I think are smart and are outstanding business people, but they have different roles to play. Uh, their job is to serve their shareholders, maximize profits, run a business. My job as President of the United States is to make sure that the overall system is stable and that uh, the economy as a whole is well served by a healthy, functioning uh, system that allocates capital uh, in efficient ways. And that means that the interests of any individual bank or banker are not always going to be congruent with uh, the interests of the economy as a whole. Uh, that shouldn't be a surprise. Uh, and uh, I would say that the American people should be suspicious if. Um, anybody who's occupying this office thinks that whatever is good for you know, the top 10 banks is automatically good for America. Um, and even bankers shouldn't want their president to be thinking that way. Um, you know, when we put together, for example, a, a Consumer Finance Protection Board, which has been you know, uh, deeply opposed by uh, Republicans, and they're still trying to roll it back. Um, the, the basic view that anything should go uh, ignores the evidence that of the, the role that predatory lending played in the crisis back in 2007, 2008. And uh, when we put forward regulations that make mortgages simpler and more intelligible to consumers, uh, that may be bad for somebody's short-term bottom line if their business model is, bu is built on pushing out uh, shaky loans to consumers, but it will actually be good for the housing market and for the financial system as a whole, if people know what they're buying and uh, they can afford uh, the mortgages they take on. But some of the some of the 
rules put in place have meant that it's harder to get loans. I think something like 58% of approved mortgages are going to the wealthiest applicants, and home ownership among African Americans is, is down. So where's the balance there? Well, uh, the interesting thing, because we look at this very carefully, is that there's no doubt that there has been some pullback and increased conservatism on the part of lenders. But oftentimes it's not justified by the regulations. Mm -hmm. It is a byproduct of them rethinking their business model. So if you talk to a number of bankers, what they'll say is, look, uh, these loans, uh, if structured in a way that uh, people can actually af uh, afford what they're buying, aren't that profitable to us. Or small business loans may just not be worth us churning through the paperwork. Uh, that is independent of any regulatory uh, requirements that are being placed on them. And typically what you've seen is a pendulum swinging, where after a financial crisis, uh, oftentimes there's a pullback on the part of the banking industry. My suspicion is, is that that will end up loosening. Mm -hmm. uh, and when it does, that's when you want to make sure that those regulations are avoiding some of the excesses that we saw in the past. It's interesting though, you don't seem, um, it strikes me, you're, you're unlikely in your afterlife to end up work, you know, working on Wall Street. <laughs> Would you be happy if your daughters ended up on Wall Street? Uh, well, they, I, I'm, I'm pretty certain that my daughters will not end up working on Wall Street. Uh, look, I genuinely believe that one of the great uh, uh, comparative advantages that we have as a country is this extremely broad, deep, sophisticated financial sector. Mm -hmm. um, it, it means that there's more capital flowing through this country that can be directed to startups and small businesses and expansion uh, than any place else. Uh, and we want to keep it that way. But I do believe, and this is not just uh, my bias, I, I think a lot of economists uh, share this view, that if you start getting to the point where 40% of the economy uh, is taken up by the financial sector, and that our best and brightest are, are going into uh, you know, uh, financial uh, work as opposed to engineering or computer science, uh, then we could actually lose our compar uh, competitive edge over time. And uh, you know, we don't have a command and control economy. Ultimately, the market will figure out what that looks like. But what we don't want to do is to set up the rules in such a way where uh, we are skewing the decision-making of both uh, the, the next generation of talent or uh, businesses towards financial manipulation as a means of building wealth as opposed to making stuff and inventing stuff and, uh, and uh, 
coming up with goods and services that people actually use. Talking about that, when we look at, um, you know, we've talked about some of the positive things in the economy, unemployment rate, mm -hmm. but we still see productivity yeah. uh, a big problem. We have growth sort of hovering around 2%. Right. People like Larry Summers talk about secular stagnation. Right. When you look at how to stimulate growth and also to prepare our economy for what we have going forward and how much it's changed, what are you? What do you think are avenues of growth? Well, do you, do you, do you think something? Fun, uh, quick, yeah. Do you think something fun, fundamentally underneath this has changed? That there isn't the same kind of growth that was possible when you came in, perhaps now isn't. Well, uh, I, I'm a congenital optimist uh, about the prospects of the American economy and the world economy generally. Uh, if our expectations are uh, to duplicate the growth here in the United States uh, that occurred right after World War II, when Europe was destroyed, Japan was destroyed, uh, half of Europe was behind an iron curtain, and billions of people in China and India uh, were uh, suffering under uh, either communist rule in the case of China or uh, uh, socialist uh, uh, approaches to the economy that uh, stifled uh, creativity and growth and innovation in India, then uh, we have to see that as a unique period in, in, in our history. Uh, but I do believe that we can grow a lot faster than we're growing right now. And I think we can grow faster than any other advanced economy. Um, some of this foundation that we've uh, laid out, uh, I think, puts us in a position to do that. Uh, the investments we've made in uh, R&D, the investments that we're making in uh, clean energy, uh, the uh, investment we've been making in education and job training, uh, those are all things that may not have a payoff today, but will have a payoff five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now. So just to take a, a simple example, uh, when I came into office, uh, we started working both with the public sector but also the private sector, companies like Intel, to say, how are we going to produce more engineers? And our goal has been to generate 100,000 more engineers, but also engineering teachers and uh, really focus on STEM education. That will help with productivity growth over the long term, even though it may not show up in year one, year two, year three of that initiative. The things that we have not done that we need to do uh, that could make an enormous difference uh, are proposals that I put forward that Congress has so far blocked. Uh, the most obvious one would be infrastructure. Mm -hmm. um, we have about $2 trillion worth of deferred maintenance. And those are jobs that can't be shipped overseas. Those are jobs that um, not only uh, economists will tell you create uh, a multiplier effect throughout the economy, but also lay the foundation for long-term productivity. And uh, at a time when capital is so cheap, for us not to be doing that is uh, crazy. And historically, infrastructure investment has been bipartisan. It, uh, you know, Eisenhower built the interstate 
railway system. Uh, our first president, Abraham Lincoln, was pretty big on you know, locks and dams and we need, a, we need a president who's in the real estate industry. Well, that I'm not sure about. But, the, uh, but, but there's no doubt that that's something we should be doing that would generate uh, uh, higher growth and uh, would generate productivity uh, gains right now. Uh, the fact that we haven't fixed our immigration system uh, in an intelligent way uh, is contrary to uh, what our experience tells us, which is that uh, compared to Europe or China or Japan, one of our biggest advantages is attracting continually new talent, strivers who want to come to this country, who are willing to take enormous risks to get here, and then uh, are going to try to uh, start a new business or populate entire communities that uh, have fallen on hard times, uh, that will make a significant difference. Um, the, making college more affordable uh, so that uh, every young person is getting some post-high school training. If, if our workers are, uh, are better trained, have higher skills, that's going to make us more productive. So uh, there are a number of things that we could do right now. Uh, that don't require some out-of-the-box uh, policy initiatives that would really make a difference in boosting productivity growth. I also believe that uh, increasing wages as a share of the overall economy will help us grow. Now, uh, what, do you, what do you think is the ideal minimum wage? Well, You've said 12 before, but how high can he, it go? He, he, here's what I would say uh, as, as a general proposition. That if you work full-time in our society, uh, you should be above the poverty rate. And that might mean something different in Manhattan than it does in uh, a small town in Arkansas or Oklahoma. But what is absolutely clear is there's a certain threshold uh, uh, above which you can pay your bills and below which you, you can't. Now, what our economic history seems to indicate is that when workers have a sufficient share of the overall pie, they spend it. Consumer confidence grows and businesses are more prone to invest one of the problems that we have right now, and I talk to CEOs who tell me, look, if we're growing at 2%, then I don't need to make significant business investment to make a profit. I just have to make sure that through automation and other means, I'm keeping my costs low enough that uh, I'm going to make money uh, selling basically the same amount of stuff. If you have workers making a better, uh, a better wage, now you've got bigger markets to go chase. And uh, what we also know is that uh, the attitudes of people when they see some modest increase in their wages uh, ends up having a virtual, uh, virtuous uh, effect on the economy uh, as a whole. So, you know, I think that uh, 
as we move towards a economy where, uh, because of automation, you need fewer and fewer people uh, to make more and more stuff. More and more of us are going to have to uh, move into the service sector. The service sector historically has been a low-wage sector. Uh, and in order for us to make sure that we don't see this growing divide between haves and have-nots with a middle class that is shrinking, we're going to have to make sure that the service sector pays better. Think about how difficult it is right now for a young idealistic person who wants to go into teaching to figure out how they're going to live a middle class life as a teacher. Now there's no job that's more important to our economy than having really good teachers in the classroom, but right now the way our economy is structured, it's very hard for young people to make that decision unless their parents are subsidizing them in a fairly significant way. And so what's the answer to that problem? Well, that, that, but that, that's an example of us thinking about how do we pay our teachers, how do we pay our healthcare workers. More and more people are going to be going into that sector. Those are sectors, by the way, where uh, productivity gains are not going to be as fast because, by definition, uh, interacting with a child or helping uh, uh, an elderly person who uh, is, is going through physical therapy uh, is, is less tied to, less subject to automation. Uh, and so we're going to have to make some broader decisions in terms of the social compact about how uh, folks who are making a living in, in, in really important necessary jobs uh, are getting compensated. Uh, my, my broader point, though, is that uh, for a while, I think there's been a tendency among economists, business leaders, pundits, to pose this um, conflict between uh, issues of, of equity and, and, and distribution and efficiency. And my argument is that we should be investing in those things that are going to make us more efficient, like uh, infrastructure, like R&D, like education, like trade, uh, which uh, puts me in conflict sometimes with some of my members. I, I'm not somebody who believes, or some of uh, the members of my party, I, I'm not somebody who believes that uh, we can lop off the global supply chain and somehow that's going to make us uh, more productive even if it was possible. But I also believe that if you combine those things that make us more efficient and more productive with uh, a, a strategy to increase wages and incomes for those folks who are increasingly going to be employed in the, uh, in the service sectors, then uh, you will not only get uh, sustained broader economic growth, uh, but you'll also gain the political consensus that's necessary to continue becoming more efficient just, over just, time. Just, just try to argue with that. Um, you look at, we're in the middle of this transition, arguably, as, as big as what happened from the agricultural to the industrial revolution 150 years ago. That took like sort of 30 or so years to go through. And this time around, actually, I mean, quite a lot of economists would say this time, globalization is really going to start targeting all those services jobs. 
and if you want to keep up wages in that area, doesn't it, in the end, push us as a society, not in your presidency, mm -hmm. but in some mm -hmm. time in the future, towards some kind of thing, like a universal basic income, or some kind of... The, the, the way I describe it is that um, because of automation, because of globalization, uh, we are going to have to examine the social compact the same way we did yeah. early in the 19th century and then again uh, uh, during and after the Great Depression. Uh, so you know, the, the notion of a 40-hour work week, a minimum wage, child labor laws, et cetera, those will have to be updated. For, we, we might have to work less. We might have to for uh, these new realities. Uh, but if we are smart right now, then we build ourselves a runway to make that transition that is less abrupt, because we're still growing, and we're beating the competition around the world, and so with more surplus, with, with more wealth, with uh, better performing economy, those choices don't look as wrenching. If we don't make good decisions now, and growth is slow, and people feel as if they're losing ground, then it becomes harder to have those discussions. So you're absolutely right, John, that, that um, you know, if, for example, uh, smart cars, mm. where the technology basically exists now, uh, start moving out across our economy. Mm. The number of people who are currently employed driving vehicles of some sort is enormous, and some of those jobs are pretty good jobs. You know, people are worried about Uber, but the fear is actually driverless Uber, right? Uh, or driverless buses, or what have you. Now, there are all kinds of reasons why society may be better off if smart cars uh, are the norm. Significant drops in traffic fatalities, uh, much more efficient use of the vehicles so that we're less likely to uh, uh, emit as much uh, pollution and, and, and carbon that causes uh, climate change. Uh, you know, drastically reduce traffic, uh, which means that we're giving back hours to families that are currently taken up in road rage. All kinds of reasons why we may want to do that, but if we haven't given any thought to where are the people who are currently making a living driving uh, are transferring into, uh, then there's going to be deep resistance. So, so trying to separate out uh, issues of efficiency and productivity from uh, issues of distribution and how people experience their own lives and uh, you know, their ability to take care of their families, uh, I think is uh, a bad recipe. I think it's not an either-or situation, it's a both-and situation. But one of the reasons people are feeling left behind in the climate we have now is because of free trade. Mm -hmm. Have we not done a good job of selling the benefits of trade to people who feel yeah. that this is something that's taking their jobs, yeah. taking away their future. 
A couple of interesting things about trade, and obviously I've been giving this a lot of thought because we uh, invested a lot of time and effort and energy uh, around uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership and uh, are, are now in the process of negotiating uh, with Europe on the transatlantic uh, deal as well. Uh, number one, the majority of Americans surveys show still favor free trade. Uh, it's just that those who are opposed feel it much more intensely. Number two, there is no doubt that some of the uh, trade deals of the past and the way in which globalization occurred over the course of the last 40 years has not always been to the U.S. advantage. So you take the example of China's ascension to WTO. From a geopolitical perspective, it was absolutely the right thing to do. And since I have friends who were there when that happened and are uh, now uh, you know, in our administration or are advising uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, the, the Clinton campaign or others, uh, I've talked to them. And in fairness, nobody anticipated that China suddenly was going to be uh, the, the, the engine of, of world manufacturing that rapidly. But there probably were some safeguards that could have been built to make sure that they weren't devaluing their currency unfairly, uh, that they weren't uh, engaged in the same the kind of uh, state-owned enterprise subsidies and dumping that they were. Um, and hopefully we have learned lessons from what happened there. My argument with for my friends uh, in the union movement, for example, and I'm a strong union supporter and believe that we should have laws here in this country that make it easier, not harder, to uh, uh, give workers a voice. Uh, my argument to them is if you're, if you're fighting that battle, uh, you're fighting the last war. Uh, that you have to recognize that globalization is here to stay. That to keep one of the auto plants that have reopened and grown here in the United States operating at full capacity, they're reliant on parts from all over the world and trying to disentangle that uh, is all but impossible. And our goal then should be to try to shape trade deals that raise standards everywhere. And that's what we've done with TPP. I just came back from Vietnam. They are introducing measures in their constitution to recognize worker organizations that are independent from the government for the first time. The only reason they are doing that is because they wanted to be part of TPP uh, and wanted to be part of this massive global, uh, uh, regional market. Uh, and the same is true for environmental standards. You know, we're able to have conversations with Malaysia about not just human trafficking, but wildlife trafficking, uh, because they are interested in TPP. So the goal when it comes to trade is to learn from uh, where globalization has fallen short in the past and to try to uh, in, embed in the trade agreements higher standards across the board so that we have a level playing field. If we simply pretend that trade will go away or that we can block it off, 
then China will set the rules for trade for the next 20, 30, 50 years. It sure won't be good for U.S. businesses. It won't be good for uh, U.S. workers. Uh, and ultimately, it won't be as good for uh, workers in Vietnam or uh, the people uh, of Malaysia or uh, other countries that we're working with. Um, now, the, the last point I'd make on this is, is the, 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 the challenge from a perceptions point of view is that the benefits of globalization we take for granted. The costs are highly visible. You can argue that one of the reasons that inflation has been so low over the last two decades is because uh, you know, we're able to get a lot of stuff cheap mm -hmm. from all around the world. And you know, we take for granted that we can get a flat screen TV really cheap or that we get uh, clothes that fit better and last longer than when I was a kid. You know, you walk in a, the J. Crew or the Gap and it's a great improvement. I try to tell my kids, you know, you guys look a lot sharper than I did when I was your age because we went to Sears and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't working the same way. Um, on the other hand, when a plant closes, we see it and, and people feel it acutely and entire communities feel it acutely. So uh, I, I think this is where uh, the, the need for us to go into those localized areas that are most acutely affected by trade and work with them not to sell them a, a, a bill of goods that somehow uh, if we just stop trade, all those manufacturing jobs are coming back because they're not. Automation has displaced them a lot more than globalization has. It does require us to go into those communities and say, we're going we're to make sure that your kid is getting uh, the kind of training that allows them to succeed in the next generation of manufacturing, the next generation of uh, uh, biotech. We're going to make sure that your entire community it has broadband. And one of the great successes of our administration that hasn't been talked about a lot is the fact that, you know, uh, in part because of some smart decisions we made about spectrum and laying broadband lines, uh, you know, the, the, the penetration uh, and the speed of broadband in this country since I came into office has grown exponentially. Through a program called Connected, we've got 98, 90, we're on track for 98, 99% of uh, schools around America to uh, be connected with high-speed broadband in their classrooms. So we've got to go in those communities and say, here's how we're going to do it. Here, that's part of what our manufacturing hubs have been all about. Finding communities that have been hard hit and saying, we can still make stuff, but you know, if, if your strategy is just to make the same old steel that you were making 30 years ago, you're not going to be able to outsell uh, the, the, the Chinese or the Brazilians or others. But what we can do is uh, you know, have uh, an old Kodak plant suddenly uh, be at the cutting edge of photonics 
and train an entire generation through your community colleges and universities so that they are expert in that field and you will see a new uh, growth that is compatible with uh, globalization and you will allow you to succeed. Can I come? Can I? Okay. I'll give you five minutes. Okay, good. I'll give you five minutes. Can I give you, just come back at you on that? I mean, what you've described very accurately is how, how progressive politics should deal with globalization. I interviewed Tony Blair last week. Exactly the same thing, but for progressive politics, particularly on the centre left, centre right. right, basic fact seems to be out there that people aren't getting it. They're not. They're not. People are revolting against globalization. Not not just to do with Donald Trump, Brexit, right. Marine Le Pen, all right. these different bits. They don't accept the stuff about immigration. Right. They don't like the picture to do with free trade. Right. They don't like the idea of elites making money out of the yeah. globalized economy. All those things go together. Do you yeah. have the rules of the politics of selling that message, have they changed? My argument has been that the reason people uh, are resistant to that argument is because global elites have been inattentive to the issues of wages, incomes, and opportunity for ordinary people. If if you are selling globalization and saying it's great, even though each year, not just in the United States, but across the advanced economy, you're seeing more and more of a winner-take-all economy, where not just the top 1%, but the top 0.01% are getting a larger and larger share, then yeah, it's going to be pretty hard to make the argument that, don't worry, this is great for you. And this is another area where sometimes uh, uh, I find myself uh, arguing with my, with my friends in the business community. The issue is not resentment or class warfare or uh, that somehow uh, we want uh, to level everybody down rather than lift everybody up. The, the issue is that if, in fact, automation and globalization do have a tendency to create vast wealth and opportunity for a very small, highly skilled set of people and have a tendency to create uh, a larger and larger group of folks who feel redundant in the economy, and you don't pay attention to that, then people will rightly resist. They will understandably say, I am not getting a good deal Is that here. what Donald Trump is tapping into? Are you surprised by his rise then? Is that exactly the phenomenon? No, I, look, I, 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 think, I, I think that the temptation in that circumstance is to resort to nativism and uh, nostalgia and the sense that these are things that are now out of control and I want to take control back. And that can be true on the left, it can be true on the right, but I continue to believe that the majority of people, whether in the United States, in Europe, 
or certainly in rapidly advancing parts of the world like Asia, uh, those folks recognize that the world has shrunk and that if the rules are structured properly, that this gives them more opportunity, not less, to succeed. I think people still understand that. If you, if you talk to the younger generation here in the United States, they're not knee-jerk anti-trade. They're not anti-globalization. Um, if you look at surveys, it tends to be older workers who are feeling displaced, who are attracted to this notion of let's uh, pull up the drawbridge and, and, and shut everybody off. Uh, but if we are to succeed in shaping a sustainable, uh, growing, prosperous, integrated world economy, then we have to pay attention to uh, the trends that push towards greater inequality and find ways to uh, modify uh, those tendencies. And we know how to do it. We know that if we're investing in education, early childhood education, college, making that cheaper and more affordable, then workers are going to have more opportunity. We know that if we have higher minimum wages, then they will get a larger share of the fruits of all these amazing new innovations and globalization. We know that if we have stronger labor standards and workers have more of a voice, that is going to make a difference. And you know, there were a bunch of decisions that were made back in the 30s by FDR, and then again later uh, in this country uh, in the 60s uh, that were fiercely resisted by business, but essentially created a social compact and uh, a, uh, a, a social welfare state where people said, okay, uh, I'm seeing the benefits of innovation. I'm seeing the benefits of cap capitalism. I'm seeing the benefits of trade. We just have to update those uh, for the 21st century in the same way that in previous uh, eras we uh, updated those uh, for the shift from agriculture to industry or the shift uh, to uh, a, a global economy. And that is going to require some farsightedness, not just in the uh, public arena, but also in the private sector. Um, you know, the, uh, if I'm a CEO in a boardroom right now, I should be thinking about how do I make sure my workers are, are, are making a decent wage? And, and if I'm a shareholder, that is something that I should be paying attention to. Because if you're not, that's when you start getting uh, the kinds of political pushback that you're seeing uh, here in the United States. That's how you start getting a Brexit campaign. Um, and over time, uh, you will strangle this, this uh, goose that's been uh, laying you all these golden eggs. Uh, share the eggs. <laughs>
Do you, ever, do you have any desire to run a company yourself? Would you be interested in that once you? Uh, well, I, I, I will, I've said this before, and I think it, it surprised a lot of people. If, 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 if I think about what would stir my passions, uh, had I not gone into politics, it, it would probably be starting, uh, starting some kind of business. I, the, the, the skill set of starting my uh, presidential campaigns and, um, and, and building uh, the kinds of teams that we did um, and, and, and marketing ideas, uh, you know, I think uh, uh, would, would be um, the same kinds of skills that uh, I, would, uh, I would enjoy exercising uh, in, in, uh, in, in the private sector. Now, I'm always careful about uh, drawing too many easy parallels there because sometimes there are CEOs who come in and start explaining to me how uh, I should be uh, uh, running the presidency, and I, I, I sometimes have to stop them and say, all right, one, uh, I, I appreciate your advice, but imagine a situation in which uh, half your board and management uh, were actively trying to get rid of you <laughs> and prevent you from accomplishing anything, uh, and, about, uh, and you had two million employees, and uh, you couldn't uh, fire a large portion of them, <laughs> and uh, uh, your competitors uh, weren't simply promoting their own products, but were uh, <laughs> continually saying how your products were the worst uh, that were ever invented and will cause a civilizational crisis. And if, if, if you kind of pull that all together, uh, then you got about uh, half of what I'm dealing with on a daily basis. Uh, and which, which, which industries would you, would you think about getting into? Well, you know, I, it, it's hard to say. But, but, but what I will say is, is that, just to bring things full circle about uh, uh, innovation, the, the conversations I have with um, uh, Silicon Valley, with uh, venture capital uh, pulled together my interest in science and organization uh, in a way that uh, um, that I find really satisfying. Um, you know, you, you think about something like uh, precision medicine, the work that we've uh, we've done to try to build off of. Uh, the breakthroughs in the human genome. The fact that now you can have your personal genome map for a thousand bucks instead of a hundred thousand um, dollars. And uh, the, the, the potential for us to uh, identify what your uh, you know, tendencies are uh, and to sculpt medicines uh, that are uniquely effective for you. Um, that, that's just a, an example of, of uh, something I can sit and 
listen and, and, and talk to folks for hours about. Um, and, and I think the same is true for uh, all kinds of sectors of the economy. You, you know, Michelle was doing uh, work on let's move and healthy eating. And you're seeing now entire uh, industries shaping uh, around how do you get people to eat better in ways that taste great and uh, are much more environmentally conscious. And so uh, a lot of the policy work we've been doing you know, when you when you uh, when, when you talk to the innovators in these spaces, there's an enormous optimism and 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 an, and an attitude of problem solving, uh, a willingness to experiment and, and think in new ways uh, that I think is really exciting. You know, we're going to have a, a global entrepreneurship summit, uh, the last one uh, that. Uh, of a series that we, we began when I first came into office. And the enthusiasm from around the world about these summits speaks to the, the advantage that we continue to have here in the United States. Uh, it is one, one of the most effective means of public diplomacy. It's the thing that young people in Africa or in Asia or in Latin America uh, uh, get excited about when they think about America is this notion that you get a good idea and you organize some people to support you and you learn from your mistakes and you create something entirely new. You can become Bill Gates. And you can become Bill Gates or in some cases uh, you, know, you can electrify a village uh, and you can save uh, uh, you know, water in the desert uh, and, and, and uh, you know, make uh, people um, you know, uh, a little bit of money and, and over time you can, you can see a, a complete transformation. Uh, that's the thing about the U.S. economy that continues to be unique. Uh, and it's tied to capitalism and markets, but it's also tied to a faith in science and reason and uh, a mindset that says there's always something new to discover and we don't know everything and uh, we're going to try new things and we're pragmatic. And, uh, and if we ever lose that, then we will have lost... Uh, uh, what has made us uh, uh, a, a, an incredible force for, uh, for good in the world. If we sustain it, then we can maintain uh, the kind of progress that has been made. Uh, and I always tell interns and young people who I talk to that as, as tough as things seem right now, do not believe people when they tell you uh, they wish uh, they could go back to the good old days. Because the good old days aren't, aren't I, I, I'm now old enough where I remember some of those good old we days. Are. But doesn't, it, doesn't, doesn't it annoy you then that the, most, the guy who, who, the most successful businessman in America, at least by his own reckoning, is Donald Trump? Well, I, I, but uh, there's no 
successful businessman in America who actually thinks the most successful businessman <laughs> in the country is Donald Trump. I, mean, I know those guys and so do you and I guarantee you that's not their view. Thank you very much everybody. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank you for listening to Debrief. I'm Megan Murphy. You can find me on Twitter at Megan Murp. Business Week is on Twitter at at BW. And Debrief is available on iTunes, the brand new Bloomberg app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.